مرحبا يا عمو Inside the Bunker, an intense podcast series that opens the hatch on dangerous topics through the heart of storytelling. Hosted by Yasha Kassir, this series will delve deep into the heart-wrenching stories of humans who've experienced and defied the struggles of war, poverty, exile, and complete hopelessness. But don't worry, we always find a way to make it inside the bunker. So strap down and tune in before the hatch closes with Inside the Bunker. I am not in Syria anymore, but I'm still experiencing it. Even now, I feel the non-stop traffic that hummed against the ancient walls of Damascus pulsating in my ribs. I resented it when I first arrived in Syria in 2003, and now I long for it. It's been 15 years since I've wandered the streets of Damascus, 15 years now without walking the streets and shopping the markets and losing myself to the spellbound dreamscape. And although I'm not in Syria anymore, somehow I'm still experiencing it. I frequently find myself retracing the bus routes of Damascus in my daydreams, trying to recall every sidewalk and storefront and balcony and reliving the whole city in my mind. I'll imagine asking the bus driver, عند النفق زبتريل Let me off at the next stop موقف السعدات Where the scent of warm jasmine flower perfumes the sky and it mixes with this nearby bakery sesame sweets It's so perfect I see my companions waiting with kind faces They smile when they see me The tea is boiling The nostalgia is perfect But it is here that tears of pain and longing and sadness overtake me. The image of their handsome faces fades away from me, and a deep, open wound in my chest causes my throat to swell up, and my eyes to unravel with tears, and my palms to sweat. Oh, Syria, my daydream has turned into a terrible nightmare. The traffic that I so long for comes to a standstill and the color fades from the precious scenery and I smell nothing but fire and burning and the friends that I've gathered here cannot be found. I have not allowed myself to feel this feeling for a while. To recognize what Syria has become today because Till this day, I'm still looking for a healthy way to speak about the precious years. Still hunting for a language and a dialect, an accent, anything that can contain the marvelous gravity that the years of Syria had taught me. I'm still looking for it. Fifteen years have passed since my last visit to Damascus, and ten of those years, this bloodthirsty monster took Syria by the throat. It's taken me ten years to call it what it is. A self-destructive, hateful, self-mutilating entity. This remorseless black hole that destroys everything in its wake and extinguishes any cries for help. A monster. I've tried for so long to hold Syria up to the light, to fit it into this nice frame and to hang it on the wall and to let it tell its own story. But what always happens is I bend the corners and the frame cracks and the entire image crashes down and 
we both look at its brokenness. Chlorine gas. And it's here that I resent myself because speaking about Syria and its current status requires a level of bitter honesty. I don't think I have it, guys. Because Syrians are known for their sweetness. And I guess the goal of creating this podcast is to put myself behind the mic and to retell some of those not-so-sweet and painful stories that hide in the darkness that are so close to me. That's what Inside the Bunker is. The last stronghold that tells what others cannot bear to tell. As I get older, every passing breath either rebuilds a part of the truth or chips away at it. If I don't tell my story now, guys, because I'll tell you one thing, every Syrian I know holds a piece of the shattered image that was once their home, their story, the way they saw it, the widespread destruction and the overall hopelessness in this region eventually deals you a cold, wretched heart, steals the peace from you and replaces it with sleepless hatred. And this isn't who we used to be. This isn't what we're known for. Thank you for listening to part one of Inside the Bunker. Stick around for the second half. Telling someone that Syria has a hundred varieties of grapes though, man, that's a beautiful feeling because for a moment you can see the astonishment in their eyes and this big smile comes to them and you can see that they can't hide their delight because it's such a random fact, but it's still essential. A hundred types of grapes? No way. But within that interaction lies a hidden one where behind the light fractal, I weep because I remember that Syria also harbors a hundred varieties of military factions that are engaged in this decade-long battle that has structurally and socially decimated the entire Syrian country. It's caused the largest refugee exodus since World War II. It's ruined world heritage sites killed hundreds of thousands of unarmed, non-combatant civilians. So when we speak about the creaminess of our pistachio ice cream and the mosaics and the Beit Arabi and the opulence of the old cities and the mysterious origins of language and all of those captivating aspects of like a dream world, we want to leave out the brutal shadow of the Assad regime and how it looms over every inch of Syrian livelihood. How it's eaten the relatives of our family alive and crushed their bones and imprisoned them indefinitely for no crime. How it has reduced entire households into abandoned piles of stones, their names never to be mentioned again. It's created orphans and widows. Tonight, a top UN official is calling the humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Syria, quote, beyond belief. 
900,000 civilians have been forced to flee Syrian and Russian bombs in the Northwest. And most of them are women and children. But like all Syrians, we want to be talking about pistachio ice cream rather than how every Syrian lives in the jaws of a gruesome dual existence where literally at any moment your world could be torn apart. It's difficult to imagine what there might be left to salvage from this destroyed neighborhood in Western Aleppo. Homes and a hospital shattered by bombs dropped by what were believed to be Russian warplanes in the town of Khor. Syrians like to keep conversation light, but really, who are we fooling? At least 11 hospitals and health centers came under attack from government forces backed by Russian air power in Idlib last month. We have lived in one of the most brutal dictatorships that this planet has recently seen, and nobody seems to care. More than three million people live in Idlib. Half of them are internally displaced. Businesses are suffering. People say they simply cannot cope. You see, in the West, almost anybody who hears the name Syria allows the name ISIS to come to mind. Insurgents and beheadings and jihadis and propaganda videos and gruesome footage of humans enacting the most unfathomable cruelty and sex slaves and... I guess I would have a hard time seeing past that as well, guys. I'm in denial when I, when I hear names like Halab and Homs and Idlib and, and people hear and see different imagery than I do. They don't see a cornucopia of rich history and ancient water wheels and the origins of language and cool, mysterious ruins. They literally see a thousand reasons why they should not get emotionally involved why they should not lend their heart out to people who are truly in need in this moment. And I guess with all that's happened over the last decade and the carnage that the land of Syria has harbored, why would I expect you to see anything else? Well, because something else greater lies beyond what you're seeing. Something worth sanctifying in the human story is found in Arabia. It's like calligraphy. It ought to be noticed and treasured. But until this moment, I'm convinced nobody wants to hear about the hundred grapes of Syria. Nobody wants to hear about our pistachio ice cream. But then again, I tend to project my sadness. My conversations tend to stray from grapes and into the logical fallacies of the Ba'athist national movement. It's, it's not a good habit. <laughs> I'm calling myself out. Pistachio ice cream from Baghdash and Sul Hamadiyah's de decorations are amazing. It's beautiful. But first, let me tell you about the details of a barrel bomb. About a meal, we call it. What a barrel bomb is and why it is so criminal to use one. Activists blame a barrel bombing by government forces. Forms a particular numbness in people like a blanket that allows them to shelter from this dangerous idea. What is that idea? The idea that Syrians have been trying to communicate to everyone since 2011. And it is that the Syrian regime has conducted a literal holocaust on the Syrian people. And the world turned away. 
by them turning away, it has exposed the absolute hypocrisy and cowardice and racism and corruption of every nation on this planet. The same echo from the past that said never again during the Holocaust somehow, some way allowed itself to say, well, maybe one more. There's a painful jolt in my chest even now in 2021 when I get asked, wait, there's a war in Syria? No, darling, there's a Holocaust in Syria. But like millions of Syrians, we sense that a lot of you have already compiled all of your information and you're waiting for Syrians to rise up and hold that safe space for you and your opinions. If I could have a lira for every time I've listened to a random guy say, yep, they've been killing each other for thousands of years down there, to which my response is, what the actual f*** did you just say to me right now? Excuse my French occupation. Any person who lives on Earth soon experiences this unkind obsession that humanity has with violence and gore. And, and you can easily deduce that humans share in this treacherous phenomenon. It's not an Eastern thing. It's not a Western thing. And when you ask people about human nature, don't they always say it's in our nature to shed blood? Does this somehow allow us excuses to commit these horrible atrocities and allow them to unfold before us? After living in Syria, though, I came to understand very quickly that there was no exaggeration or a shortage to the human phenomenon called violence. In fact, just down the alleyway, there are some people who specialize in this, like an art form, that behind the majestic byways and the ancient bricks were black hole prisons hidden in plain sight, sucking the souls out and discarding the bodies it's unkind to the Syrian regime to mention that a prison where humans are shredded apart is a normal part of our life. We just don't talk about it. Syria is beautiful here. We have a hundred kinds of grapes. I stopped recoiling at the hopeless and unholy descriptions that some people had of human beings like we're all evil and nothing is sacred. I used to say things like, how could you say such a thing? But after watching some of the violence in Syria drawn out by the government and the regime, now I know how you could say such a thing. But you must understand that in Syria, freedom of speech is not a concept. There was no order to make any attack. We don't have any chemical weapons. We gave up our arsenals few years ago. Even if we have them, we wouldn't use them. And we had never used our it is not an idea to speak freely and openly about the conditions of your government. You're kidding me, right? As an American, it became clear that Syria's censorship was so extreme, so beyond the mockery of its own media, its comedians and commentators, it was a viper waiting to bite itself. 
Even iconic figures of all spectrums maintained a silence in Syria. There was no Saturday Night Live skit that did a weekly recap of the regime's ludicrous shenanigans. No daily show that laughed at Bashar al-Assad and his long, stupid neck. There is. Even some of your fellow Democrats think you're a pushover, Mr. President. They would like to see you stick to your guns. And if you don't have any guns, they would like to see you ask Eric Holder to get some for you. Very evident upon my arrival that no person in their sane mind would ever express publicly their discontent in the way the Syrian regime ruled over the Syrians. So my first week in Syria as an entitled American, I scoffed at this notion until I personally encountered a man throwing his hands into my face, shutting my mouth, literally mid-conversation, when I began to publicly rebuke the Syrian regime for its shitty trash management, or lack thereof. And as a human who has experienced the US and the Middle East, I've come to realize that your critique of a government will vary on a spectrum when your personal safety is the collateral that the regimes like to use. Listen, there are people who haven't endured a scratch in their entire lives, yet they complain to high heaven about the daily persecutions and the sufferings they've never actually endured. And then there are people who've had their entire facial structures rearranged, their fingernails pulled out because they didn't like the way the government handled trash management in their neighborhood. So when I want to speak about Syria, trust me, I'm inclined like a tour guide to give you guys the best parts of Syria and only the best parts, the historical landmarks and the scenic routes and the best pistachio ice cream spots and, but then I have to question if I'm giving you guys the true picture. I find myself withholding mouthfuls of detail and then wonder if I'm hiding a part of the portrait, tainting it. For so many years, Syrians and myself have wanted people to see the image clearly the beauty and the ugliness. Sometimes the biggest lies tend to be the ones we tell ourselves. They become the easiest ones to tell for the longest times. I've always discovered that trying to tell a clean cut version of Syria, it's not worth the psychological warfare that I put myself through afterwards. If you walk away from me and all you know about Syria is that we have a hundred grapes, rest assured, I've not done my job. But I know one thing. Someone once said, laugh and the world laughs with you. Cry and you cry alone. Us Syrians have cried alone, and it is to them that I promise to be as honest and transparent as possible throughout this series. It will hurt. I'll likely cry on an episode and try to personally grasp painful things, and I hope you guys are okay with that. I hope you guys are prepared for pure, raw, unfiltered honesty. If not, you can unplug right here. I will not even be mad. But you gotta know that, to me, such raw honesty requires me to confront the last 10 years of Syria's genocide, the bloodshed, the self-destruction, and 
the inevitable suicide. I guess it's safe to say that I feel like through this podcast, I'm memorializing a friend who's committed suicide by putting a bouquet by the headstone. But halfway through realizing that this friend who committed suicide committed homicide as well. There are days, guys, where I want to remove this bouquet, forget that I'm a Syrian. Days where I want to just move on. And then there's days where I lay in the grave next to that friend and I wish to forget this pain. But not telling the story of my life in Syria is worse than a thousand deaths. It's in this country that I was given a thousand chances to live and to love. I learned so much. Suppressing that would be a sin. But also, like, how do I romanticize the loss that we've suffered? How do I beautify the hatred that manifested itself in our hearts over the last 10 years? The hopelessness that's tumbled our hearts through this dust and the resentment at the globe and world leaders and the international superpowers doing nothing for refugees. In fact, demonizing them. I've swallowed 10 years of it, along with millions of people. In fact, we've drowned in it. My calling is to paint a portrait that loyally depicts the groaning pain and struggle and the innumerable moments where we as humans should have given up. We were so displeased in humanity. We were so displeased in ourselves. But instead, we found a way out. We found a way to heal. We found a way to reclaim what was lost and we were able to push onward. Now that the hatch is closed and you are inside the bunker, please follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please donate to this effort at our website at 